Sometimes you stare at the title of the lesson and then you begin to think about some of the things that it might mean. The theme of our series of lessons has been God give us Christian homes. This past week in preparing this lesson, I thought a lot about a story that I heard years ago. A man had gone down to the Gulf of Mexico He had sailed out probably about a mile from shore and was fishing, and all of a sudden, one of those big waves came and capsized his boat. After the boat was capsized, he began to pray fervently, Lord, please deliver me. Please save my life. Another man who happened to be coming by in a fishing boat said, I'll be glad to take you in. Let me help you. He said, no, I prayed to the Lord that he'll deliver me. And so the man went on. He got feeling bad, so he called another boat and he said, You're a little bigger. You have some life preservers that you could offer. And so the man is now approached by a much larger boat. And the offer is, Would you like to get on board? Here's a life preserver. No, I'm waiting on the Lord to deliver me. Ultimately, the man dies, drowns. He gets to eternity and he says, God, I prayed fervently that you would deliver me. God said, I sent you a man in a boat, sent you a man with a life preserver. What else did you want? Sometimes when you and I are praying fervently in our prayers, Lord, please give us a Christian home. Please allow my family to turn out to be Christians. And for my marriage to be a kind where there's love and appreciation and devotion and then our marriages turn out to be awful and our, our families are failing. And then we look to God and say, God, why didn't you do something for my family? And he would say, I gave you my book. I gave you the Bible. For five weeks, we studied some great Old Testament passages talking about the, the home and the way God designed it and the way God wanted it to be and We are now starting our look at some New Testament passages. In our marriages, there are some things that we need to be aware of that can damage our marriages. Something that can cause us tremendous heartache and sorrow and difficulties. This morning, we're going to consider two practical passages. One looks at one perspective of marriage and a potential difficulty that could arise there. On the other hand, if you look at it carefully, there's something positive in that passage, something encouraging within it. And then the second passage we will look at will focus on the roles that God intended. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, and then we'll look at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. So get your Bibles, let's go and let's study these passages Let's listen to God as He offers some directions for us to have Christian homes. We're going to go back and read the passage that Brother Marty read for us just a few moments ago. I want to draw attention to some of the things said. You have heard that it was said to those who were of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in 
his heart. Now to appreciate this passage, you have to realize the context in which it was delivered. The Lord had gone to the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and he sat down and he taught them saying, and then we have the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. The sermon goes all the way through chapter 7 and addresses a lot of important current issues with which people were really dealing in that day. One of the most important aspects is to see what he said in chapter 5 and verse 20. Notice carefully what Jesus says. I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness... Of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness, what you do that is correct and approved by God, it's got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were those men who were charged with copying the law of God. There were no copy machines, no computers and printers in those days. And every copy of the scriptures had to be handmade and it had to be done so with meticulous precision. And the men who copied it over and over and over again soon could recite it to you word by word in its detail. Among them was also a group of people called the Pharisees who believed in themselves that they were more righteous than other people. Matthew chapter 8 or Luke chapter 18. And these men would begin to try to let you think we are the spiritual ones. But Jesus said your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? If you don't, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You've got to listen, if you will, to do what God says, why God says to do it. Now, the second thing is it corrected a commonly held view with regards to that Old Testament law. As long as I am able to check off the list, okay, I did this, check, I did that, check, and uh, why I did it or anything doesn't matter as long as I just do what it says. Jesus dealt with the motivation as well. He dealt with people who, for instance, were talking about they would swear... By the temple and said, I don't have to do it, but I can swear by the gold of the temple that I have to do it. You see, for them, it was a matter of scheming the law. And Jesus said, no, you've got to follow not only the letter of the law, but the intent behind it. Motivation matters and they're important. Now, here's where you start understanding the devil's voice in all of this. I want you to listen, notice carefully the way the devil would phrase it. And it sounds really good. You can look, but don't touch. Have you ever been told you can look, but don't touch? Your mom, your dad carries you into a, a store and says, okay, you can look at it, but don't you touch anything. Or maybe you even go into a museum and they would say you can look, but you can not touch. When it comes to a man and a woman and particularly some of those passionate feelings that might be stirred up, the devil would say, you can look, but you can't touch. And somebody would say, oh, you know, there's, there's a good bit of wisdom in that. You can't touch. 
You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2? He says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because fornications, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. The devil would say, you can look, but you don't touch. You know why he'd say that? Because he knows you're going to touch. He knows what you're going to do. Proverbs 6 and verse 25, do not lust after her beauty in your heart. Do you hear what he said? Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. You're already developing affections for her, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. You look at her and you say, oh, I think I have a desire there. And what that does is it leads to something else. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, here's what the devil knows. If he can get you to look... And he can get you to gaze and desire, then he can get you pretty soon tempted to sin. He knows how to appeal to, as John writes in 1 John chapter 2, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All the devil would say, you can look, but don't touch. But the devil knows that you want to touch. It's for that reason that pornography is not harmless. Some people would say, whatever I choose to do in the privacy of my home is my business and none of yours. It's God's business. And God knows that whatever your eyes see enters into the desires of your heart. And God knows that it's wrong. Satan would say, just go ahead and look. Just don't touch. The Bible is very plain. You don't have a right to what doesn't belong to you. If something belongs to someone else, it's theirs and it's not yours. In Leviticus chapter 18, Moses, speaking for God, enumerates a number of things that are illegitimate, particularly in regard to intimacy. And if you get to chapter 18 and you look at verse 16... You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. In other words, if they're married, that's a part of their marital life. It should not be for you or anyone else. It belongs to them. Stated very simply in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that's your neighbor's. It's his. It belongs to him. It does not belong to you. So a man who looks to lust is looking at something that is not his to be had. As a result, men should make a conscious effort to avoid temptation. If you know there are things that allure you and tempt you, you ought to do everything within your power to avoid those situations. In Job 31, verse 1, Job puts it very plainly and simply. I made a covenant with my eyes. How then should I look upon a young woman? 
I made a covenant. I made an agreement. I'm not going to look at certain things. I'm going to avoid them. And if they're there, I'm going to try to look away from them. Job knew the significance of temptation and said, I'm not going to do it. Perhaps the passage in my judgment that is so revealing is Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. In fact, if I were you, I would write in the margin of my Bible there at Matthew 7, or 5, verses 27 and 28. I'd write, see Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. There Paul writes, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness. Not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Don't go to those places where there will be a temptation for you To commit sin. And it would not matter whether it was in the area of revelry and drunkenness. In verse, the first part of that verse. If you know, for instance, that there's going to be drinking at a party. Guess what? Just don't go. If you know that there's going to be strife and envy that comes from a conversation. Avoid it. Don't engage it. If you know that there's going to be lust and lewdness, don't go, don't watch. Make no provision for the flesh. Now, man, that's an obligation that we have. You want your marriage to be great, avoid situations where you will be put in a situation where lust and temptation could enter in. Let me say something to the women. You should dress in a way that should not tempt men into looking. You should dress in such a fashion that you are not drawing attention to others to lust after you. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Paul's instructing Timothy about the church. And he talked about, I desire that men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting or disputing. And then in verse 9, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, goals or pearls or costly clothing. Women, you can be attractive in the sense of your beautifulness without being a display of the flesh. And you need to think about what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 14 and verse 13. He's addressing situations where in that context related to the eating of meats. But he says, therefore, let us judge one another, not judge one another anymore, but rather let us resolve this not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Don't do anything that's going to produce temptation in someone else. That means avoid conversations that are not as they should be. Avoid clothing that reveals too much. 
obviously, there's the example of David and the heartache that was brought by his action. You'll remember in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, I'm not going to read this passage, but David's on the roof of the king's house, and there's a woman who's bathing at some distance away, but he's able to see who she is. There's no indication in that she was displaying herself. It was the perspective or the vantage or the location from which David was observing being on top of the king's house to see what was happening. But what that did was it incited lust in him. David then committed adultery with Bathsheba. And from that, there's all sorts of heartache. Now here's the bottom line of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27-28. Marriage should have desire for one spouse and not from someone else. And if you and I will recognize the importance of not only the physical purity, but the mental purity that goes along with it, we can make our homes much happier. You see, our problem is sometimes we're not listening to the Lord and listening to His directions. He said, you've heard it say to those of old, you should not commit adultery. Yes, that's correct. You don't commit adultery. But He says, you don't look on a woman to lust for her. If you do, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. You've already put your marriage in jeopardy. Now let's go to the second passage in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22, going through verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother to be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now here is the background of this passage. The theme of the book of Ephesians is the church of Christ. Everything in this wonderful letter that Paul writes relates somehow to our appreciation of the church which Jesus established. And the focus of this book is to get us to see 
the relationship of us, the church, to Christ as our head. In Paul's day, the relationship of the husband and the wife was pretty much standard. The man was the head of the house. He made the decisions. The wife was in a supportive role, and she worked under the direction of her husband. And what Paul is trying to do is say, that's really the way the church is to respond to Christ. However, in our day and age, marriage doesn't look anything like this. We have so many unconventional homes today. In fact, we have some unscriptural homes today. We have situations where you may have two men rearing a child or two women rearing a child and they're living together as God intended husband and wife to live. Or you may have multiple men or multiple women involved, his, mine, and theirs or ours. You see, this was to illustrate God's plan for the church to be like his plan was for the home. And so what he does, he begins with the admonition, not just admonition, but the instruction. Wives, submit or be subject to your own husbands. And then he adds the words in everything. Now, um, Sometimes when we hear this idea of being subject and being submissive, it sort of runs against our grain. Those of us who have been reared in this country have a rebellious spirit within us. We prize and treasure liberty to the point that we don't want anyone to tell us what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. But when you go to the Bible, you find out we are subject to Christ And in a very real sense, we are subject to one another. Let me explain to you the context. You go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. And he says, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he begins a series of participles, I-N-G words here that explain. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your hearts. Giving thanks to God the Father. But then I want you to draw attention to verse verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. What that says is is that in the Lord's church, we all put ourselves in submission to one another. That is a voluntary choice that we do because we believe in the system. We believe that God knows what He's doing. And so in God's decision, the home, the wife says, I understand. This is my role. This is the assignment that God has given me. But it was to her own husband that the woman was not smith. She's not responsible to other men. It's to her own husband. That's the way God designed the home. And it was to be just as the church is to submit to Christ. What that would say is, is that if the Lord says something, that means that's what we do. We, the church, have no right 
to change God's design plan. But never mistake the fact that a submissive wife is a powerful woman. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, explains this idea of a submissive wife and the influence that she might have. He says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they may without a word be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do you hear what Peter is saying? Here you have a woman... Married to a non-Christian. And she, even though she's submissive, has a tremendous amount of influence because of her example. Her chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And he goes on to say, don't let it be the outward part that man looks at. Let it be the inside. The hidden person of the heart of an incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. He said, you know, holy women of God did that a long time ago, just like Sarah did. I recognize this is contrary to modern society, but in God's divine plan, both man and woman have obligations to one another within that marriage. In chapter 7, verse 4, 1 Corinthians the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the husband doesn't have a part authority over his own body, but the wife does. Oh, there's a sense in which there's a mutual submission there. So as Paul describes the ideal home, as Paul describes God's plan for the home, the wife is submissive. The second things, husbands are to be sacrificial toward their wives. And so what do you mean sacrificial? Well, he explains. The key word is love, and it was to reflect the same kind of sacrificial love that Christ had exhibited toward the church. Listen to chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. How do you know a man truly loves his wife? What will he sacrifice for her? Now, man, I want to be as plain with you as I was with women with regards to submission. Sacrificing for your wife sometimes means that you don't do what you want to do because you're more concerned about her needs than your needs and your wants. You provide for her beauty. I don't think it's insignificant that it says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself. A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She should be holy and without blemish. And then he goes on to say that a man who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it. He cherishes it. 
This true sacrificial love says, I want to provide for my wife's beauty. Now what results from that is a mutual love and respect. Here's a wife submissive to her husband. Here's a husband who truly sacrificially loves his wife. Listen to verse 33. You couldn't get a better conclusion. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love and respect. So as I look at God's plan and I'm listening and someone says, God, give us a Christian home. He says, okay, are you making sure that you are fulfilling the roles that I have assigned you in your home? Oh, but Lord, I think we could do it better than this way or that way. No, the Lord knows more than we do. And he knows the right way. If a man wants to be king, he must treat his wife like the queen. If a woman wants to be queen, she must treat her husband like the king. We sometimes want one, but we don't realize the importance of the other. If one does what scriptures teach, then they will have the home that God intended. You know, it's like baking something. If you want your recipe to turn out to the yesterday I tried to bake some tea cakes and I wanted to bake them like my mother made them you know what I still have in the box my mother's recipe you want a home like God wants it to be and like you hopefully desire that it will be follow God's recipe listen to his message will you be the one in the home who steps up And sets the godly example for Christian living. I'll tell you this. In every home you have a husband and a wife. And you may have children. And you want your home to be right. Let me tell you what you need to do. You can look at your husband. You can look at your wife. But you can say. I'm looking at myself now. What am I going to be in my home? Do you need to become a Christian? Do you need to be restored? We get to the end of sermons. Everybody thinks, okay, it's the time to grab your songbook or look up to the screen or let's just focus our minds, our attention. Let me tell you, this is really important to you today. For some of you who are not a Christian, you've been thinking about it. You've been mulling it over in your mind. You've been saying, well, maybe, maybe I'll do it soon. Why not today? Why not now? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you're willing to turn from those sins and confess your faith in Him, why not come forward and be baptized this morning? If you're the problem in your home, and you know that, why not repent? Let's make today a great day. Would you come together and stand and sing?